When I was first uh, a believer, and uh, well, I really wasn't even a believer, I, I was recruited to this Christian school when I was a senior in high school to play basketball. And uh, basketball evangelism, I guess, was the, the name of the game. But I went to this Christian school, and there I am. I'm, I'm immersed in their senior-level Bible course, and it's Bible prophecy. And I didn't know anything about Scripture. And all of a sudden, here I am studying dispensational uh, picture of what the end times are. And it's like, okay, wow. And the professor of the class, teacher of the class, was actually my wife's father. And uh, so I, I didn't have the relationship with her at the time, but it's like he was this very stern an authoritative teacher. And he demanded of us every week that we memorize from this little red book, J.L. Groom's uh, uh, Treasure Path to Soul Winning, uh, five passages every week. We memorize them along with studying Bible prophecy. And so by the end of the year, we had memorized a whole lot of scripture and our final exam was writing them out. And I was able to do it. <laughs> I learned a lot of scripture that year. So scripture memory was just, boom, just dump uh, in my head and mind. And I was loving it. I loved scripture. I, I came to faith and I uh, loved the Lord. I went to college at a college that was uh, very strong in discipleship. One of the discipleship programs I got involved with was, was with the Navigators. And the Navigators have wonderful resources on discipleship. But one of their methods is the topical memory system where you just memorize oodles and oodles of scripture. Anybody done a topical memory system? Okay, some of you have. But uh, so we were just memorizing Scripture. It was wonderful in many senses. But one of the weaknesses of Scripture memory, I think you all should be doing it. We all should be memorizing Scripture. But one of the weaknesses is you, you take these passages, you excise them from their text, and they don't have any context around them to understand, okay, what's going on with this passage in this very context? A lot of people, if you've memorized a passage about the Christian life, you've probably wrote, memorized Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. And that is a passage you memorize. And a lot of times, uh, that's good. It's foundational, giving yourself to God. But what we often miss when we do things like that is what's the context? What's going on around this passage of why Paul is writing it right at this portion in time? So let me give you a little feel for the literary context and the historical context and then move you into the passage as far as exposition and application. When you think about the literary context, what you have to think about is Paul's writing letters. He wrote a lot of letters. Thirteen letters are recorded in the New Testament. He even references some letters that aren't found in the New Testament, like the letter to the Laodiceans. And he might have referred to other Corinthian letters as well, which is another topic. But anyway, he wrote these letters. Some were written to churches, city churches, uh, regional churches. Some were written to individuals. And one of the patterns that are fo that's followed in some of his letters, not all of them, is there's a divide between that which is theological and that which is practical. Now, it's connected, but in the first part of his letter, he will deal with theological foundations. In the second half, he'll deal with applications related to that foundation. You find that very clear in the epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1 through 3 is very theological. It does have practical things in 1 through 3, but the heavy balance is theological. And the last half is very practical. Colossians 1 and 2, very theological. 3 and 4, very practical. Romans, our book that we're studying during this time, 1 through 11 is very theological, very heady. Very, uh, there's a lot of pra practical things in there, but it's primarily theologically founding, grounding. And then, beginning with where we are in Romans chapter 12, 12 through 16 are very practical. 
They get down to, okay, how do you live this out? How do you build your life upon this? I would even say that Romans 12, 1 and 2, the text that I just mentioned to you, is a passage that sort of serves as the hinge that the door swings on between the theological and the practical. Let me share that with you in just a moment. What about historical context? Almost all of Paul's letters were written to historical situations, things that were going on at the moment. Uh, One of the things we know about the letter of 1 Corinthians is that it was probably written, well, it it says that it was written in response to a letter from the house of Stephanus. And they had written a letter about, tell me about this, tell me about that, tell me about this, tell me about that. And the way you know that is when you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now concerning this, now concerning this, now concerning this. And there's about, I think, seven or eight different topics that Paul's addressing down through his letter to 1 Corinthians. It's situational. One of the things I've said in my uh, former sermons on Romans is that one of the key issues that's going on in the book of Romans is Jew and Gentile relationship. Jewish Christian, Gentile Christians not necessarily getting along in the body of Christ. And there were reasons why they didn't get along. Some of it was racial, some of it was religious, some of it was cultural, some of it was political. But these things were sources of identity, sources of pride, and therefore sources of division among them. They had alienating attitudes and perspectives and emotions, and they didn't do life together very well. And so Paul's writing Romans to bridge the divide between them. A couple examples. When it came to legality, one of the things the Jewish people had done is that early on in their history, even the time of Julius Caesar, they had supported him in his battles in Egypt. And therefore, he gave them an exemption. He knew they were very rigorous in their faith and their system, and he didn't require them to worship the Roman emperor or to worship the cult in Rome. They had an exemption. They were called a legal religion. Other groups didn't have that privilege. They had to follow their religion, but also sacrifice to the emperor and to the cult in Rome. But the Jews had an exemption. So when you come to the church in Rome, the Jewish individuals, it didn't make any difference they were Christian. Roman, the Romans didn't recognize the difference between Judaism and Christianity, I don't think at this time that Romans is written. So the Jews were still exempt, but the Gentiles in the church, they were under a lot of coercion and fearful perhaps for their lives. And so that creates a certain amount of animosity between the two groups. Another reason why you might have some friction between Jews and Gentiles was the Jews had a lot of scruples. One of their primary scruples was modesty and propriety, moral propriety. And so one of the things that they didn't do was go to the public baths. They didn't go to the public baths of Greek cities, the polises. And part of the reason why they didn't do that was because of nudity. But the problem is a whole lot of business and a whole lot of politics and a whole lot of education and things went on in the bathhouses and Gentiles could go in without any scruples, even Gentile Christians perhaps, and the Jews couldn't. So again, another area of conflict. And these things, I think, were matters of perhaps of resentment between the two communities and kept them aware of their differences. And so relationally, they weren't moving toward each other with mutual love and trust and self-giving and sacrifice. To a certain extent, they not only could not, but they wouldn't move toward each other out of Christian love. I don't think that is a far cry different from where a lot of us are, perhaps in the culture wars as we come to the body of Christ today. I'll get to that a little bit later. Now let me share with you a story that helps me help you see how I see Scripture. Uh, when I went to uh, Tennessee Temple 
my parents weren't really in favor of that, but they sacrificed to allow me to go. And every fall and spring, they either took me to college all the way down from, from northern Maine all the way to T Chattanooga, Tennessee, or drove me home. And that's a long trip. I think it was 1,450 miles that we traveled. And uh, often, my dad would almost always drive, and uh, I would sit in the back seat, and invariably, without air conditioning, I would fall asleep. And so one time, I was coming out of my slumber, and we were going under an uh, overpass. Uh, I don't remember where it was, Pennsylvania, somewhere. And somebody had written in spray paint on a, the undergirders of a bridge this, this phrase that we would all know, Jesus Christ is the answer. I'm there, wow, Jesus is the answer. Somebody's a Christian, great. Somebody else had spray painted in a different color paint and hand signature. What's the question? And I said, wow, that's brilliant. I mean, it is. It really, what is the question to which Jesus is the answer? What's the question? We get so inside of our Christian culture at times that we can't even think of what the answers that we have all around us relate to what questions are out there in the world. And we need to remember again the questions. So it started making me thinking about Scripture, and I started saying, you know what? A lot of what's written in our Scripture are answers to questions without the question actually being present in the text itself. There's a question out there, and what we have here are the answers, but what's the question? And so when I come to Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8, knowing that context, that literally historical context, here's the question I think I would pose that Paul is answering in Romans chapter, 1, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. How can people who are so critically divided along religious, racial, cultural, and political lines be together and serve one another in the body of Christ? How can people who are so critically divided along religious, racial, cultural, and political lines be together and serve one another in the body of Christ? How can people with such differences on the human level give themselves to each other in mutual love and sacrifice and, and concern? Is that relevant to the church today? <laughs> when we think about all of our concerns that we have on political divisions and racial divisions, marriages in distress, parents and grandparents addressing children with gender dysphoria issues and all these other things, do we have any separations? Do we have any brokenness? And how do we do life together in the body of Christ with all these concerns, which we're afraid to talk about to each other because we fear raising an issue that somebody might be on the other side of the divide regarding? I think Paul is addressing that type of issue as he comes to Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. And I would offer to you there are three parts to his answer, and they're sequential. They go in order, and they have to go in this order, otherwise you don't get things right. So the first things that's necessary in order for these people to come together is, first of all, we must give ourselves fully to the Lord. That's number one. Give yourself fully to the Lord, completely to your Lord. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. What mercies are you talking about, Paul? Well, Paul doesn't need to enumerate them for him because we've been sort of doing that. We could say immediately it's 9 through 11, which is election. But if you go all the way back to chapter 1, 
you know, the brokenness of humanity that's laid out, whether it's Jew or Gentile. And what do we have in Christ? We have forgiveness, and we have justification, and we have sanctification. We have the gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, that He might bring us to God. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit, who bears witness in our spirit, intercedes and prays for us before the Father in heaven. We have the love of God, which nothing can separate us from, as a gift of God's mercy. And Paul says, based upon all those mercies, give yourself, present yourself as a living sacrifice to Almighty God. It's an earnest and honest and demanding appeal that we might offer ourselves to God. What do we offer to God? Something we don't want? Something that we have left over? Something? No, it's perfect. It's unblemished. It's whole. It's holy. It's our very best. I've been involved with tasks and labor, of common labor, and oftentimes you get done a task and you go up to the person who's hired you and say, is, is, that, is that adequate? Is that acceptable? And that's the word you're looking for. Yeah, that's very acceptable. We offer ourselves as a gift, an offering that's acceptable to God. That's demanding. That's very demanding. The word that Paul uses here is our body. Well, why not our spirit? Why not our mind? Or why not our soul? Why our body? The body is the center of our affections and our passions. It's our physical life. It's oftentimes the source of most of our dysfunctions <laughs> in terms of how we operate as individuals in our world. He could have said soul or spirit. I don't think he's trying to create a, a bifurcation here between what's inanimate and what's animate or what's physical and what's not physical. I think what he's doing here is saying, when I say your body... I'm saying all of you. I'm saying the entirety of you. I'm saying your whole life, everything about your being, everything about yourself is to be offered to God. And then he says it's a living sacrifice. Living. We're not calling for a mass suicide where everybody dies because of some cataclysmic event that's coming into the world. Living is oftentimes much harder than dying. And we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifice. The ESV says it is a spiritual worship that we're offering to God. Worship is this word for the cult. The, the Jews were, the, they had the worship. And we are to offer ourselves as an act of worship to God. But it's supposed to be a spiritual worship. And I looked at the, the language behind this, the Greek language behind this, and I expected to find the word pneumatikos, which is pneuma, spirit, because that's the word spiritual. And it's not that word here. The word that's here is not uh, pneumatikos, it's logikos. What do you hear? Logic. You hear word, you hear wisdom, uh, you hear reasonable. And the idea behind this is not so much spiritual in some esoteric sense, but it's, it's a reasonable expectation of us that we would offer ourselves entirely to Almighty God. Why? Because of all of His mercies that we've seen. And we've experienced in our lives, it's logical. And this concept of logic and thinking in our minds is critical to this text. You're going to see that in the next section. So once we've offered ourselves to God, what then? Paul says, second, and this is in order, you must reorient your thinking about God's purposes in the world. You must reorient your thinking about God's purposes in the world, and that includes how you relate to people, both inside the church and outside the church. You've got to reorient your mind. 
Retrain your minds. We live in a very, very broken world. It needs to be healed. It needs to be restored. It needs to be reconciled to God. God is about that work. But many times we in the church are people who still need healing and restoration and reconciliation. Our world is broken and fragmented, and we are broken and fragmented and divided, seeking our own selfish well-being and not the well-being of the other. And Paul is trying to address problems in the church, and he's saying most of the problems relate to, number one, we haven't given ourselves to God, but number two, we haven't reoriented our minds to think about the world and think about life and think about relationships the way God would have us think. When people give themselves to God, they give themselves also to the will and the ways of God. We give ourselves also to the will and the ways of God. We reorient our minds to them. So what is it that God is doing in the world? He's restoring all things to himself through Jesus Christ. And this has two different dimensions among many. One is he's transforming individuals to be in the image of Christ through his mercies, by regeneration, by the renewal of his mind, through his word and spirit, personal transformation. Secondly, he's building up his church through mutual self-giving. I think we have such a low view of the church, and that's something that's grown in my own understanding over time, is that the church is something, that, as it says in uh, Acts chapter 20, that Christ shed his blood for his church. And he died for his church. And I think you say, well, is it, are you talking about uh, Living Faith Church? You're talking about some other church? We're not talking about them to the extent that they are part of the larger church that Christ died for. He died for his church. And our theology of the church should be high. And understanding that God loves his church and gave himself for his church. And if you watch it in the New Testament, you find that most of what he's trying to do relates some way to the church. We're part of this. And part of reorienting our minds is getting ourselves into this sense of transformation that God wants to do in us, changing us to the image of Christ, but also what he wants to do with us together as the body of Christ. What does he want to accomplish through us? What does he want to do in our personal lives, but what also does he want to do through our associations in the body of Christ? So what you find Paul doing right after he says, transforming your minds, he starts to talk to us a little bit about the body of Christ. And he doesn't do that just randomly. I just talked about giving yourself in sacrifice. Let me talk a little bit about the body. Now let me talk about spiritual gifts. This is a linear, progressive, uh, logical arrangement that Paul has in his argument. Give yourselves to God and then start to understand what your place is in the body of Christ. That's part of this reorientation process. And Paul has a whole lot to say here. It's not just you getting saved, that, which is so critically important, but to think if that's all it is, that's very, Paul would say that's very, I mean, you were reading, it's the, you started crying when it said, don't think of yourself above what you ought to think. Don't be arrogant and don't be so self-focused that you think it's all about you or all about me, right? It just breaks our heart to think that sometimes we get so small in our thinking. Paul says, no, it's more than that. It's what God is doing on the grand scheme of restoring all things to himself in the critical place that the church plays in that. And so as Paul lays this out, he says, well, what is he saying about the church? He says, each one of us are members of the body of Christ. We're all participants. We're all partakers. 
we're part of one body of Christ. Ultimately, there's only one body of Christ. We say that in our creed, right? We believe in one holy apostolic and Catholic church. One. We are each members of the, that body, but we're also members, because of we're members of the body, we're members of each other. I'm attached to Christ, but I'm also attached to you, and you're attached to me, and we're attached to each other. Whether we hardly know each other, or whether we're spouses, or parents and children, or whatever, we are connected vitally to each other as members of the body of Christ. There are many members, and none of the members, uh, well, some members have the same function, but all the members have functions, and they may be very different from other persons' functions in the body. And we're all utterly dependent upon God, but we're also mutually interdependent upon each other. I need you and you need me. We all need each other. And getting our minds around that as what our relationship is with every person in this room is critically important for us to understand who we are and what we're supposed to be doing in the world and getting aligned with what God's program is in the world. Your spouse is a member of the body of Christ with you. And you're supposed to love them and honor them just like you would do any other person in the body of Christ. And so Paul lays this out and says, we ask the question, well, okay, Paul, this is all about Jewish and Gentile relationships, so what do Jews and Gentiles in the first century, what should they take from this teaching on the body? Jews and Gentiles, Christians, you are one body in Christ. Forget about the categories of Jew and Gentile. Let, it's gone. Diminish it. Let it go. Because you are one in Christ, and you are Christians. And don't just be Jewish or Gentile in the high priority of things. You're intended to be unified organically and functionally. You're, you need each other, and you're expected to serve one another, and not just on your party lines of Jew-Gentile. That's his message to the first century church. What's his message to the 21st century church? We're not talking so much. We don't have a lot of problems, Jew and Gentile. We have very few Jews in our audience, I, would, I understand. And those who are, are Christians. So what does it mean for us who are so divided oftentimes politically and uh, culturally and attitudes towards this and that? It means setting aside our agendas, setting aside those categories that somehow we value so highly, even higher than our understanding of ourselves as being Christian. It's restoring our minds to the truth of God in Christ that we are Christians, part of the body of Christ, and how we think is critically important. Our assumptions, our prejudices, our self-talk, our logical processes, our categories, they diminish in importance to what God is doing in the world. We let it go. We actually repent of it. Repent means to change your mind of those things and let them go. I think there's always a time when people get older that they think things are going to the dogs. <laughs> uh, you, uh, every generation feels that as they get older because they, they don't have, the future's not theirs, so I don't think they think about it as their own, but they just think things are getting worse and then they die. And the next generation goes on, does okay. Uh, it hasn't all gone to the dogs. But I do think that we're at a critical juncture in our country uh, with reference to values and virtues that are used to be much more in common than there is at this present time. I think we have a lot of brokenness. I think we have a lot of division. It's very difficult to find people who really share your values, even if they're not necessarily Christian values, but values of just 
how we are good to each other, you know, in the body of Christ, in, in our body politic. And so I think we get to a place where we have all these people who live in different universes and different brands of truth and listen to one type of media versus the other. And all of a sudden, this fragmented brokenness of the world bleeds over into the church and we can't talk to each other and we can't have a conversation. We fear each other because if, if you give a little bit of indication who you don't, might support for president, uh, you're going to get burned. <laughs> you're going to get chastised. Or you're going to be judged that you're not even a Christian. And all of a sudden, all this stuff becomes higher value than who we are in Christ. And then you see all the fragmentation of the world is in the church, and all the brokenness of the world is in the church, and all of the problems that we see in the world are in the church. And we don't have any difference when it comes to divorce rates or other issues of obesity, whatever it is. We're the same. And you get to the point where you ask yourself, what difference does Jesus Christ make in our lives as a body? Has he made any difference in who we are as a corporate body as we exist in the world? Or are we just another people who just set into one category of the world? And I think our calling is burst those categories aside and, and let's come out of this thing like a, like a rocket and say, what is that? I don't have a category for it, but it's good. It's right. It's appropriate. It's acceptable to God and it's, it's light and it's salt. And it draws me to, it's compelling. And it's not something I reject. And so I find us so broken in our world. And Paul, what would he say is the answer? We need to start reorienting our minds, rethinking about who we are. What are our virtues that need to be part of our lives? What are the values that need to be part of us? What is the will of God in our world and in our lives that's good and acceptable and perfect? And how do we align ourselves to it? One of the best definitions of the church is a foretaste of God's heavenly kingdom in this earthly world. It's just a foretaste of the heavenly kingdom. Are we that type of a compelling body as we relate to each other and as we include and embrace and set aside differences that are on lesser worldly planes and, and just embrace and love each other in Christ? And as we reorient this way, all of a sudden we're shaped into the type of people God wants us to be and that can make an impact in the world individually and together, corporately, as the body of Christ. Impacting all relationships, whether it's Jew or Gentile, male or female, free or slave, husband or wife, parents or children, employees to employer, we're transformed. And we're salt and light wherever we go. So Paul says, adjust your thinking. So the first thing is, give yourself to God. Then secondly, start to reorient your thinking to the will and the ways of God and, and, and how we are to live. And many times that leads us to other areas we need to surrender. <laughs> so we go back, it cycles back to number one. But then it leads to number three. It is only after you've done one and two that you can fully, third, give yourself fully to others. You can just offer yourself fully to others without fear. There's a wonderful text in uh, 2 Corinthians. It's a, a totally different topic. It's talking about uh, giving. And Paul has been going through Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece and these various areas trying to raise funds for the church back in Jerusalem, which is all Jews. He's going among all these Gentiles and saying, would you give an offering to the people back in Jerusalem because of the famine? And the people in Macedonia prayed about this and thought about it. 
and beyond their means, Paul says, of their own accord. He didn't, I didn't coerce them. He said they actually begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the Jewish saints. They begged to be part of the offering. And what he says in that text, in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's an outline of this passage. They gave them first to the Lord and then by the will of God, understanding what the will of God was, to us. This passage is telling us we give ourselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, understanding what the will and ways of God are, we're able to give ourselves to others unreservedly, without fear, trusting God that he can use it to build his kingdom purposes and achieve his kingdom purposes in the world. Paul has a lot to say about this, and he's going to continue that in Romans chapter 12, but he immediately focuses upon spiritual gifts. He doesn't give us a whole exposition of spiritual gifts. He doesn't list all the spiritual gifts we're aware of in Scripture. You can go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, and there's your major list on spiritual gifts. And there's only seven, I think, in this particular text. But he's just raising them up as examples of giving yourself wholly, once you're able to give yourself to the Lord and reorient your mind, what can you do? You're supposed to give yourself in mutual self-giving in the body of Christ. Your gift is not a matter of pride. It's not a matter of hoarding. It's not a matter of holding back. It's not a matter of selection. I want to give it to you, but I don't want to give it to you, and I'm going to offer my gift to you and not to you. And it's like the selection process. It's not a good old boy club where some people benefit and others don't. It's giving yourself wholly to others. So Paul goes down through his list. If you have the gift of prophecy, then do it with a proportion of faith that God has given to you. Do it. The language that our NIV says that when it talks about the spiritual gifts, let us use them. You know, just lays it out. So gift of prophecy, do it according to the proportion of faith that God has given to you. If you have the gift of service, of helping others in their needs, then serve. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of exhortation, then exhort. Encourage and provoke. Don't be provocative, but be a provoker to love and good works, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. If you have the gift of leadership, then do it with zeal. If you have the God-given capacity to show mercy, then do it with cheerfulness and joy in your heart. Serve others. And do all of this first to the Lord and then by the will of God to others. Just lay it out there. Offer yourself, not looking to what party they belong to, not looking to what racial class or, or social class or whatever else it may be, what economic level, what, you lay it out there and just, you don't allow the brokenness of culture to bleed over in the church. We allow the Holy Spirit to move in our midst by his word and by his teaching to transform us, that we might be healed and mended in Christ. And once we are healed and mended, offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, but ultimately to the world. The cultural divides have no place among our relationships, in our relationships. They shouldn't. They do, but they shouldn't. I should be able to move toward you without fear when I know the ways and, and I'm declaring the ways and the will of God. There should be no fear of retort and name-calling or whatever it is. When it comes to any fault 
in human relationships, I think Paul would say from this text that there are three areas that are potential deficiencies in our lives. If we have any human relationship that's broken, marriage relationship, parent-child relationship, you peer-to-peer as, as believers, pastor believers, if we have brokenness, there's fault in one of three areas, a deficiency in one of three areas. First of all, a fault in our surrender to God and to His will. We haven't given every area to God. And God would call us, as we're reminded of it, to offer those things to God. Bro- offer our brokenness. Offer all of your life to Almighty God. That's the first. The second is a fault in the transformation of our minds because if we're in conflict, if we're in difficulty, if we're in separation, there's something wrong with our thinking or the other person's thinking and we need to change. We need to lay it out before God and repent, change our minds so that we can move toward another. And if we're putting something higher than our, our Christian bond in Jesus Christ for being able to have a relationship, then that's not good. I don't have another word. <laughs> I have other words, but I'll reserve. And lastly, there could be a fault in our giving of ourselves fully to another. We're holding back. We're demanding. We're waiting for the other person to move toward us, and that is not God's way. We take initiative. We move toward the transforming and reconciling purpose in our hearts and minds that we might be one in Jesus Christ and that the world might be attracted to this beautiful place of harmony and love and peace. Is everybody going to respond positively to you and receive what you have to do and receive your gifts, open arms? I wish it was true. Paul helps us see that it's not. A little bit later on, just a few verses later, Paul says, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all people. <laughs> in, some, in some ways he's saying, there's some people it's impossible to do this with and they won't allow inroads. They've got walls up that you can't break through but you still offer yourself without fear. You still offer yourself freely. You still give and you still hope and you still pray. And if we're doing those things, I don't think there's any end to the potential of our church becoming the the place where God's kingdom shines in righteousness, peace, and joy. And I don't think there's any end to our potential of engaging the world with the transforming love of Christ. The only question is, are we willing to enter into these tasks, these roles of giving ourselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, understanding His will and ways, offering ourselves to others as He builds up His kingdom and accomplishes His good purpose in this world. Let us pray. Father, I'm always humbled before Your, your Scripture. I do sense this is a high calling even beyond what I've obeyed and lived out in my life. And I pray, God, you would give me the capacity to understand and to repent and to offer myself again, myself again, as a living sacrifice to you, transforming my mind. And as I do so, give me the freedom and the courage and the lack of fear just to go and offer myself, offer the gifts you've given to me to others, believers, but also to the world, so that, God, you can accomplish your kingdom purposes. Lord, if this group, if the people in my hearing entered into this fully, it would be amazing. I think we'd see amazing things in our homes. I think we'd see amazing things in our workplaces. I think we'd see amazing things in our neighborhoods. And I think our church would be a place that just shines forth with kingdom purposes, outpost of your purposes in the world. May it be so, we pray.
Maybe so. Amen.